Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Are you considering a library construction project but have no idea where to start? Tepe Architects has designed more than 100 libraries and has a 40-year history of excellence. Use their free library building planning guide to jumpstart your next building project. Go to tape.com slash Dewey, that's T-A-P-P-E dot com slash Dewey, to download their booklet that explains each step of planning a new or renovated library building. Get your free guide at tape.com slash Dewey. Again, that's T-A-P-P-E dot com slash Dewey. Tape Architects, designing places that inspire. American Libraries Magazine's Library Design Showcase, published in our September-October issue, is a highlight of the year. At least it is for me. I edit the annual feature, which means I get to spend a good portion of my year studying, admiring, and evaluating the year's most impressive new and renovated libraries, a selection of which ultimately get featured in the showcase. And it's always a visually stunning collection, spanning all types of libraries. But it's, it's more than just pretty pictures. There are stories behind these spaces. Human stories that reveal why and how these buildings came to be. This month on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we talk with architects behind two of our featured libraries to get personal, behind-the-scenes perspectives on these buildings' designs, their construction, and impact on the community. First, I talk with Jim Stuffelbean. He's from SAP Design Architects, about the new library in Joplin, Missouri, which has become a symbol of rebirth for the town after it was devastated by a tornado in 2011. Next, I speak with Derek Jones. He's from the architecture firm Perkins and Will about the Route 9 Library and Innovation Center in Newcastle County, Delaware. It's a unique library built to alleviate an information desert in the area. But first, a word from Tape Architects, this episode's sponsor. You're ready to begin your library building project, but how do you make sure it will meet the needs of your community? The experienced staff at Tape Architects have developed a tried and true community engagement process for library building projects. Library Design Director Jeff Hoover has presented this approach at the World Library and Information Congress and other, other library industry gatherings. Go to tape.com slash Dewey, that's T-A-P-P-E dot com slash Dewey, to learn how to effectively gain input from your community. Tape Architects, creating libraries that engage. In 2011, an EF5 tornado ripped through Joplin, Missouri, destroying much of the town and killing more than 150 people. As Joplin rebuilt, it was decided that a new library was necessary, a place not only of learning and knowledge, but a place of community. I spoke with Jim Stuffelbeam. He's an architect at SAP Design Architects, one of the firms behind the new Joplin Library, about the new facility and how it's seen as a symbol of rebirth for Joplin. All right, we're here with Jim Stuffelbeam. He's from SAP Design Architects. Jim, thanks so much for being on the Dewey Decimal Podcast this morning. Yes, certainly. Glad to be here. 
Uh, now, Jim is uh, one of the, the, the architects um, for the new library in Joplin, Missouri. And uh, the, the library, it's, uh, it's featured, featured in a 2018 library design showcase. In fact, for those of you that have the print edition, it's the opening library, and uh, uh, for good reason. Uh, we're impressed with it both uh, visually, the design aspect, but the, uh, the story of the library uh, and its impact and uh, place in the Joplin community is very important. Uh, in 2011, Joplin was devastated by an EF5 tornado, destroyed uh, much of the city, and the, and the library is, is uh, a part of the rebirth, uh, part of uh, reclaiming the community. And um, Jim, I want to talk to you a bit about this library and um, how, it, how it came to be. I think this, we should start there. Um, why was uh, the, the original library, it wasn't destroyed, but this, the community decided to build a new one. Uh, why was a new facility built in favor of renovating the, uh, the existing building? Correct. Well, it, it is an interesting story, and it, uh, as you said, it was not destroyed by the tornado. In fact, it wasn't even touched, the downtown part of Joplin. But uh, the library was seen as a catalyst for some of the, the rebirth and growth. And originally, uh, the city and a master developer had looked at the library in a development combined with some uh, retail and even a movie theater, as uh, part of the complex, and they put that that package together, if you will, to seek uh, federal grants, uh, like an EDA grant, uh, Economic Development <clears throat> Administration grant, excuse me, and um, ultimately, uh, through the EDA and the city, they decided to separate the library, and the EDA thought that was a much better appropriation for the grant, so it started out as, as a mixed-use and then the library broke off, and uh, they selected the site, which uh, was uh, a couple of blocks uh, east of the high school, which was replaced. Um, the high school was uh, destroyed in the tornado completely, and, and you may have heard that. But um, So it was on a corridor of the city that was going to be developed uh, after the tornado, and the library was seen as a, a key public um, landmark and catalyst for redevelopment in that area along with the high school uh, being just down the street from it. So and, and that may be more than you want to know, but it, that's kind of how it came about, even though the library was not destroyed. The, the, the new building is it's significantly larger. Um, what, um, what were the main uh, additions to the new space? How did, how, I guess the, the question would be, how does it differ from the old library? Well, the old library was excuse me, um, undersized, had one small meeting room for the community. They had no windows, low ceilings, almost felt like a basement. Um, the library in general had very few windows. Um, it was constructed, um, I believe it was late 80s, early 90s, and um, it was actually designed for another site and was configured for that other site, and at the last minute, uh, decisions were made to move it to a different site and location, but the building design remained as it was, so it was turned around backwards on the site. Oh, wow. It completely filled the site. The parking was uh, really inadequate. So there were a lot of kind of quirky things that uh, that led to a, a library that really wasn't functioning well in this new century. Um, they have a great children's program, and uh, oftentimes would uh, uh, unintentionally, folks would have to be turned away because there was no room for them to come to the, the children's programs. It was just packed. 
Um, so there were uh, a lot of reasons that the community really needed a new library. And it is striking if you look at if you look at the space because it is, um, as you mentioned, the old one was kind of you know insular and you know blocky and, and, and no yeah. windows. And you this couldn't one tell it is, was a library. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it gave it's you no windows. message. That it, yeah, yeah. Uh, this new one, it's 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 all windows. It's very open and airy, and um, uh, it, I think it does really capture that sense of a sense of, of, of rebirth and, and, and newness and vitality. And one thing I really liked is uh, the outdoor space. Um, mm -hmm. It has this beautiful um, lit seated area. Um, um, but one thing I think that um, is on my mind when it, when it comes to a, a project such as this, and maybe some of our listeners, is the fact that since much of the city was impacted so heavily by that uh, by that tornado, um, that that must uh, come into the planning stages of, of any new buildings in, in such a city. Um, how does that? How did um, how do you construct for uh, tornado preparedness? Um, was was that taken into consideration when you were building this new space? How to to, to fortify the building? Yes, certainly. And um, given that it was mostly funded through an EDA grant, that was one of the requirements of mm -hmm. EDA that it uh, that the new building should have or shall have a um, a FEMA rated storm shelter. Uh, but the uh, uh, the various stakeholder groups had all talked about that as well, that they wanted the library to have a safe place mm. uh, regardless of the EDA grant. So it was designed, the community room, uh, which normally would seat about 200 uh, um, when you uh, uh, when you put folks into it in a storm shelter capacity, it can hold up to about 400. Um, oh, wow. But that is a reinforced FEMA-rated storm shelter uh, rated for EF5. Uh, tornado. It's precast, but it does have windows in it. it has storm-rated glass, and the uh, the entry doors from the uh, the gallery inside the library um, are also storm-rated. So it's designed for the rest of the building to be blown away, having the storm shelter uh, remain intact. Oh wow! Um, well, I was going to also add, it also has a um, uh, a fairly good size emergency generator to maintain vital systems. And the commons uh, part of the library is designed to be a control or a, a, um, a command center should it uh, be necessary if, if some other uh, disaster should ever occur in the city. Um, it has power and lights through the generator and the storm shelter that it could be uh, open and operational um, for the public as well as a command center. Let's, that's, I mean, it's incredible that these things are in place, but let's certainly hope that they don't ever have to be used. Correct. Um, right. Now, Jim, uh, since this, um, the building is seen as this, uh, this symbol of rebirth and, and uh, for the community, a community impacted by tragedy, um, how is that, that notion, that abstract notion, incorporated into the design of the building? Uh, there were two or three different ways that that was incorporated, not in a, a memorial way, or, or sense, but more in a celebratory way, um, and somewhat subtle. But there's a, there's a sculpture out on the north lawn near the plaza um, that uh, is symbolic of trees and new birth, and it's uh, it, it has several symbols. It, it, it may not be real obvious to folks, but it it was generated out of some thought about rebirth. 
Um, there's also inside the building some ceiling panels, uh, one in the children's area and one in the lounge, one in the adult reading area. The ceiling panels are patterned after a, uh, a monarch butterfly's wing hmm. in terms of the, the curves and the shapes and so forth. And um, during the tornado, there were several children who spoke about having visions of butterflies during the midst of the storm. There was one little girl who said that she had a, a dream that butterflies had come and rescued her out of the rubble of this building. That probably didn't actually happen, but that was a vision that she had. So some other artists have picked up on that, and there are a couple of murals in the, in the, uh, in the city on the sides of some loft buildings that depict butterflies. So there's kind of a, a, a symbol and a, uh, I don't know, metaphor or, or whatever you want to call it that has, uh, the city has picked up around the butterfly. So we incorporated that into the building as well. And then, of course, the storm shelter. Um, mm -hmm. One interesting thought, uh, you mentioned the building has, is very transparent and has quite a bit of glass around the perimeter. And that's strategically located. It's it's only about 37% of the, the exterior perimeter is actually glass, but it looks very transparent. And that was a conscious decision because some people were asking, well, should the new library have any windows? Should it be uh, a bunker um, to protect against a future tornado? And uh, all of the stakeholder groups um, collectively said, no, we don't want the design to be driven by fear. We want it to be open, transparent, um, looking forward, um, and, and to make the right, the right statement uh, for the community and not driven by uh, concern or fear of, about a future tornado. So uh, that was important as well. Yeah. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for, for joining us today on the podcast. Um, it's been fascinating talking to you about this new library. And, again, uh, our listeners, um, it's, it's worth checking out, uh, either in person or, or, or do some exploring and try to find uh, – uh, learn a bit more about this library. It's wonderful. Uh, Jim, thanks so much again. Hey, you bet. Glad to talk about it. It's a wonderful uh, building, wonderful experience, and, uh, yeah, I hope folks uh, do get a chance to check it out. What will your next library look like? How will it meet the needs of modern learning styles and adapt for the future? Tepe Architects has designed stunning, sustainable libraries that work, ranging from LEED Platinum Historic Renovations to an AIA ALA Library Building Award winner. Get inspiration for your next library building project from their library gallery at tape.com slash Dewey. That's T-A-P-P-E dot com slash Dewey. Tape Architects, designing places that inspire. The Route 9 Library and Innovation Center in Delaware County, Delaware is an impressive facility that's helping to redefine the library experience with unique spaces dedicated to learning and creative expression. But the library's reason to be, it's, it's much bigger than that. The Route 9 Library and Innovation Center services a population situated in a land area between industrial waterways on one side and industrial highways on the other. It's an island of limited access to public resources. Not anymore. I spoke with architect Derek Jones from Perkins & Will Architecture Firm about the library, its design, and how it's really helping to revitalize that area. Hi, we're here with Derek Jones. Derek's with Perkins and Will. Um, Derek, thanks so much for joining us on the Dewey Decimal Podcast today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Um, now, Derek, you you and, and Perkins and Will, you're behind the uh, Route 9 Library and Innovation Center in Newcastle, uh, 
County of Delaware. And it's it's a, a beautiful building. It's um, extremely striking, but also um, exterior and I think um, the uh, more immediately uh, recognizable visual elements, they, the library itself, the, uh, the facility itself all has so much to offer, it's incredible. Um, so let's, I really kind of wanted to, to dig into to the to the space and how it came to be. Um, now, the library itself, the Route Nine, it's it's kind of in this interesting space between it's by bounded by industrial waterways and interstate highways. Um, let's 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 t talk a bit about that. What was there first, and why was it important for for a library to be built in this area? Yeah, well, um, this area, as you said, it's it's kind of a an island in that it's cut off from neighboring uh, areas through industrial waterways, uh, industrially zoned land, and huge major interstate highways. And so, getting access there, this community's access to library services and just general public services is pretty limited. Uh, and so, it's one of the last areas within Newcastle County to actually get library service. I think it felt like it was a, um uh impoverished area in almost every type of urban metric, whether you're looking at educational achievement, uh, average income, it falls uh, well below the uh, Delaware average and even further below national averages. So I think this was a little bit of a... Um, a project to help improve that and help give uh, this community that lives there, which is actually a, a very um, old community, uh, one of the first middle-class African-American neighborhoods in this part of the state, and uh, to give them access to tools and skills uh, to help improve and, and raise the level of their ability to succeed in the current economy. Um, the area that that we serve here is actually it's a combination of three communities that uh, come together known as Dunleith Garfield Park and Overview Gardens and they have been um, I, I guess you could say or they have felt like they would have been neglected and so this was uh, this project was um, very much a healing gesture, I think, to this community, both real and perceived, and uh, it got a lot of attention, uh, not only from the county, but also at various levels of um, the political arena. So there was a lot of interest in doing the right thing here. And a library was just one element of a larger plan of a um, more extensive innovation district and innovation corridor. So the site that the library is on is actually uh, far larger than it needs to be for the library alone, but it was considered to be an innovation hub, and then the library would be the anchor to that, and Route 9 corridor would begin, or hopefully it could become a catalyst to more of an innovation corridor that would stimulate other types of job and skill growth along that corridor. Now, um, it sounds like there are a lot of a lot of stakeholders in this library, a lot of different voices. You're, 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 you'll be servicing three communities, as you said. Um, so there's there's a, a lot at stake and a lot of people uh, with <laughs> that that hold stake, I guess you could say. Um, now, mm -hmm. what was the process like um, 
involving all of these people into the process? Were they involved? And what input did um, the library, um, the library system, and the community have on the, the design and the design process? Yeah, so the uh, the county and the library system were uh, intimately involved uh, at every step of the way, and they were also very interested in getting community engagement and involvement. This needed to be a place for the people and by the people. And uh, they also wanted it very quickly, so we had this challenge of how do we create a robust uh, stakeholder engagement process but also get this delivered uh, on a fairly quick timeline. I think the overall time from the very first uh, stakeholder engagement meeting to the opening was about two and a half years, so that includes all design, all programming, and construction, uh, which by you know, for a 44,000-square-foot library, it's a pretty good pace. But we did hold um, a series of probably about four or five public engagement meetings, and we like to take these uh, in steps, and we like to use them sequentially so that we can hear uh, from the people in the communities uh, what starting with programming needs and what the actual experiential goals are to what the program elements are to how it might start um, reaching out and connecting to the site and the story of the site and the legacy of those communities and ultimately into a design. So it's a kind of a very layered process um, where we constantly return and close the loop with the communities to give them feedback on, you know, what they said as a collective body, what we heard and how we've interpreted that into the building. The the area itself, um, this um, kind of information and access desert, um, knowing that the library was going to be in this area, um, how did that influence the design and the amenities that uh, the facility offers? Because if you look at, um, and I encourage our, 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 our listeners to go to um, Perkins & Will website, and you can just, or if you're in the area, go to visit the library itself, there's so much more than than just like the traditional what a traditional library would offer you, know, you have a sensory room stem stem lab um and so much more how did uh knowing that you were going to be servicing this particular community how did that influence the design and what you what the library ultimately would, would offer well you know with projects like this it it starts off with a client with a vision so it mm-hmm. No matter what uh, questions and ideas we bring to the table, if the, and in this case, the library system, if they don't have a strong vision and the, uh, and the will behind it, it's, it's very hard to achieve these new kinds of programs. But the way we look at libraries today is, um, you know, they used to be what I like to call have to places where you had to go to access certain books and materials. And we really have been trying to look at them, how do we turn them into want-to destinations? Because now you have all types of technology to access those have-to needs from any place at home, in a cafe. But how do you make it a want-to destination, a place where people actually want to go? And a lot of it is about thinking of them in both in terms of their traditional programs of uh, children's, teens, and adult services, but also uh, about how can we take what might be, you might call it a grocery store of collections into much more experimental kitchens and places where people are actively testing new ideas and um, thinking about 
producing new information or new ideas or prototypes and not only consuming them. So how do we start bringing that? And the, the communities as we engage them were completely behind uh, really having better access to technology and technology tools, but not just high-tech. They were looking at low-tech, at congregation spaces, gathering spaces, and there were a lot of partnerships that evolved out of this process where uh, a school had a program in the culinary arts, for example, so we converted what might be a cafe or even a self-service type cafe into a full-blown kitchen with, um, or, or teaching kitchen with dual cooktops and everything that would help not only bring an amenity into the library, but help partner with that high school in their program. And so there were a number of those. Uh, another really interesting program uh, is one that evolved out of just uh, trying to create some tactile sensory spaces for children and that gradually evolved into what we call the sensory room which was in partnership with Autism Delaware. So this is a uh, a relatively small room but it includes a number of modules where you can uh, control the stimuli. So for children along the autism spectrum you might be able to modulate the level of uh, touch and sound and color and help them uh, learn to cope with incoming stimuli to concentrate, develop their own literary skills and, or literacy skills. and. Um, so this is, as far as we know, this is the first installation of its kind within a public library, and we're, we're really interested to see how the programming develops and uh, how not only the public uses it, but uh, the Autism Delaware may utilize it in more of a clinical way. Yes, one thing that uh, that really struck me was, like as you mentioned, this, this combination of low-tech and high-tech. I, I think that um, the community itself would probably appreciate that because you know there are there are ways to to um to enhance digital literacy but there's uh, you haven't forgot that um you know the nuts and bolts and the tactile things that are necessary for for learning so i thought that was wonderful offerings aside like uh, uh that we we'll are mentioning but i think there's one thing that that we had to discuss and that's uh, just the visual beauty of of the of the uh the library itself it has a, a very distinct look at uh, almost like, like a tree can you speak to that a bit what was uh, the the influence uh behind that aspect of the design yeah you know we um we think about these as uh um being intimately connected to their place and when we say place it's not just the physical place but also the cultural place and the cultural the community that they're serving. And uh, so when we were in a number of the public engagement meetings, we really started um, trying to tap into what are the legacies and uh, histories that are shared between these three communities that we're working with. And there were many ideas put out there about local luminaries or histories, but they were all kind of particular to one community rather than to all. And as we went through this, I remember at one meeting, somebody stood up and said, well, what about the big tree? And everybody started nodding and said, yeah, the big tree. And we weren't quite sure what that meant. And as we explored what this was, there was literally a very large big tree. We actually found it. Um, and uh, 
But what it was was a gathering place. People would say, hey, I'll meet you at the tree. And people just understood what this was. So it was a sheltering space, a gathering space. It was a community space. And we thought, why couldn't the library or why shouldn't the library also be this type of sheltering community space? So we picked up on this idea and then began thinking about the canopy of the library and the protective canopy that it was and could we start thinking of it almost as the um, the leaves of a tree that start to filter the light and create a more softer dappled light inside, but also recall in an abstracted way what that canopy could be and to start drawing those elements in. Uh, it, it makes for, I think, an, an interesting and engaging design, but perhaps more importantly, it's a story that everybody can connect to and you know, buy into and relate across generations. It's still relevant today. Um, now, the library itself, you had the ribbon cutting in September 2017, correct? Um, mm -hmm. And now, what uh, since then? It's it's been almost a year now. What uh, what feedback have you received from the community um, about the library? Um, how's it been received? You know, it's been uh, tremendously positive, um, and uh, we we haven't. I think they're still exploring how to use their spaces and, and the types of synergy. And it, I could say it's a project that is not complete and uh, will continue maybe forever not to be complete as the, you know, this idea of the innovation uh, hub expands. So there's still discussion about what will go on the back of the site. And we have deliberately uh, organize the site so many of the gathering spaces are kind of in that in-between area between what the future programs might be towards the back of the site and this and the library and so it becomes a mixing ground there but um, I remember one of the, uh, the county uh, project managers and speaking with them and I was asking uh, him the same question and he related a story of a of a young girl in the community is probably about um, nine years old who frequented the library and uh, and he was there observing her come in one day but she was walking in a very different way very deliberate with tremendous purpose not sort of ambling in ready to sort of explore and uh, in this library we have a substation of the police department um, that is there to uh, well for a number of reasons but she rather than turning into the library she went straight up to that door knocked on the door and was let in and perhaps uh, 40 minutes later walked out and uh, the project manager uh, asked uh, inquired as to what was going on and um, was told that she had come to report some issues of domestic violence and, you know, that's, that's sad that uh, a girl of this age was put to do that, but it's also heartening that she felt like the library was the safe place that she could go to to actually deliver that message. So I think it's really interesting how it's been embraced in, in all levels of community. Oh yeah, that's absolutely wonderful, um, Derek. It's it's as I mentioned, it's 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 a wonderful space. Um, I encourage our listeners to, um, if you're as I said, if you're in Newcastle County, stop and see the library. It's it's really quite breath, uh, breathtaking. Um, Derek, thanks again so much for being on the Dewey Decimal Podcast today. Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Phil. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. 
I'd like to thank Jim Stuffelbean from SAP Design Architects and Derek Jones from Perkins & Will for joining us today to talk about their new library designs. And also, I'd like to thank uh, Tape Architects for being our sponsor today and really helping make this episode possible. Join us next month as we delve into the secret lives of librarians. What are you doing when you're not at work? We'll find out. Do you have something to say to us? You can contact Dewey Decibel on Twitter, Facebook, or via email at deweydecibel at ala.org. If you have any questions, concerns, story ideas, anything at all, you name it, we want to hear from you about it. And iTunes users, please don't forget to rate us and leave us a comment if you can. Your thoughts and words help us reach more listeners. As always, I'm Phil Morehart from American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thank you.